Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. We're recording at the incredible Wheatwood Hall Hotel Podcast Studio. This is a podcast that goes way beyond stigma. We talk about men's mental health and mindset. We encourage the type of conversation that will open you up to another way to live life, another way to see yourself and the world around you. If you are ready for that, you're in the right place. I'm Stevie Ward and I'm an ex professional rugby league player and captain and now I guess I'm a bit of a podcaster, speaker, actor, writer, entrepreneur. I'm still working all that out but at Mentality we help men take control of their mindset by teaching them to find purpose, resilience and what I believe is the new success, inner peace. That sounds good. If you are that guy who is waking up to the fact that they need to do something different in life and the same old habits aren't working for you, it might be time to step up. If you want to start your journey with us, you can go to mentality.co.uk forward slash coaching to join the best team you have ever seen. have got one of the biggest players in the mental health mind management world for you today. We've got Professor Steve Peters. He's a consultant psychiatrist and author of the number one selling personal development book in the UK of all time, The Chimp Paradox. He's written The Silent Guides and My Hidden Chimp 2. Professor Steve Peters specializes in the functioning of the human mind, which is basically all that we have that's the thing that we need to train, that we need to make better. And we have got the top dog who gives the best advice for that. He helps people from all walks of life and professions to understand and manage their emotions, thinking and behaviour. His past and present work includes an NHS consultant, forensic psychiatrist, senior clinical lecturer and undergraduate dean at Sheffield Medical School and working in elite sport in all sorts of elite sport, every elite sport. He holds degrees and postgraduate qualifications in medicine, mathematics, education, medical education, sports medicine, and psychiatry. This was one of the best podcasts we have ever done. We went right down into it. We got the systems of why we think and how we think, and why we're a little bit irrational at times. Why do we self-sabotage? Why do we worry consistently? It's all things that I do, but I'm sure a lot of people listening to that podcast do that too. And it is answering your questions, your worries, your concerns, and giving you a way to look at your mind and a way to look at the world. Enjoy the pod because we loved it. Amazing to have you with us, Steve. Thank you. It's great to be here. So hopefully you'll be able to grill me and get the most out <laughs> yeah, of it. You've got the live podcast Q&A experience, mate. So I'm excited for you to have that. Um, and yeah, Steve, if you could just give us a bit of a rundown, mate. You uh, you do your fair share of work now in the elite sport and across the NHS, across universities. Um, could you give us a bit of a rundown, mate, into to your journey into sport? Because I know it wasn't the conventional one. Yeah, I mean, my background, obviously, I'm a doctor, so I worked in the NHS and for 20 years uh, and was a consultant there and a clinical director of a hospital. 
And so that, that was my background. I ended up in, within the NHS in forensic psychiatry. So I worked um, under the Home Office uh, detaining people that would be colloquially called psychopathic. We know them as dissocial personality disorders. But alongside that and my clinical work, I was had an academic career. So I'm a professor at Sheffield Medical School. And by freak chance, one of my students took a job in elite sport and then called me in to say, do you remember me? I did, excellent student, and said, I've got a guy in sport that I think has a mental illness and I'm, I feel out of depth. Could you give me an opinion? So it's great. I keep in touch with a lot of my students. So I did say, yeah, I'll just do it as a favour. I'll, I'll just come over. So I met this elite athlete. I have to say at the beginning, I can't give names of people I work with unless they've given me permission or they've gone very public about working with me. So I'm not giving this one out. Um, and I, I worked with this particular athlete. And what I do is I, I looked at uh, how his mind was functioning. I, I'm not a sports psychologist. So I'm not an expert in the field. What I did is uh, from my work within the clinical field of how the mind works and functions, which is my specialist field within psychiatry, I'm looking at optimising the performance of the mind and looking how it can take us in different directions that we don't want. So I worked with this guy and he did exceptionally well, but not just within himself, but actually in the sporting arena. Because obviously he asked me things like, how do I get my mind to focus? How do I get rid of thoughts I don't want? So I went through and gave him a lot of insights and it started to snowball. Obviously, elite sports people know each other. And before I knew it, I was being called from various sports and it, it just catapulted into a full-time job at one point. And so that, that, that was it. Yeah, so and that, and that athlete then... Did he have mental illness then or, or was it just sort of something they needed to work on? No, I think um, I try and uh, make this succinct. When people come through the door in psychiatry, in my opinion, a lot of this obviously is just an opinion, I like not for you, my experience, is half of them need medication because their brain isn't actually functioning. So there are transmitter systems or there are hormones that are not actually functioning well. So we need to treat. Um, so I'm not a doctor who dives in with medication. I think that I call malfunction, whereas dysfunction is where we've got this really fantastic machine in our heads that's perfectly in good working order, but we don't know how to manage it. So therefore, it creates havoc to us and other people uh, because it's just out of control. So that is really the arena I ended up in, looking at dysfunctional minds and how we learn how to run our minds in the way that we want them to feel, to think, to behave, rather than allowing our minds to hijack us and doing what we maybe don't want. So I still treat uh, illness, a, dis a malfunction, but generally my world is about dysfunctional uh, people who can learn a skill of how to manage the mind. And, and, and just like, how do you differentiate you know, illness from sort of dysfunction, mal malfunction to, to dysfunction? What's like the main difference there? It's, it's a blurred edge and, and different doctors will give you sort of their feel of what it is. But I guess to take sort of extremes either side, if, if you've got somebody who their mind, the transmitter systems are not working, so they start to hallucinate and they might hear voices. So that clearly is, is not a functioning mind. That isn't normal. Uh, there's something going wrong. So we would treat that and get them back into a position where that's not happening. And I think most people would agree that that's an illness, that's malfunction. Whereas, say, somebody who can't manage their diet, 
that's just a drive that they're just not able to contain. So they eat too much or too little. So therefore, you start thinking, well, that's within their power if we can help them to actually manage their mind because that's dysfunction. So you wouldn't dive in in those cases with medication because the evidence isn't there to support treating them with medication. And would another sort of malfunction be someone who just sort of can't produce enough serotonin or just has, has a, a severely depleted mood consistently? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, serotonin is quoted. It, it, it's often quoted as the happiness transmitter, but actually there are lots of pathways in the brain using serotonin. So it also contains anxiety systems or promotes them. Uh, so we also know things like bulimia nervosa is based on serotonin. But the big one is most people say if you have uh, serotonin where it's not being picked up, by transmitters, your levels are normally normal, um, but the transmitter systems can't get collected in your head, then you tend to get low mood. So that's the commonest cause that we feel is depression, where people's serotonin levels aren't picked up and they start to malfunction. So therefore, that's a good example where you would probably want to start medication. But there is evidence that even talking people through when they've got mild to moderate depression, you can actually change the transmitter systems so it is a blurred edge, and that's a clinical decision where if I were working with you and you had these low moods, I've got to say, where is he on the spectrum? And then work with you. It's a, it's a joint thing. It's a team thing. I work with people that we test things out and then we watch what happens. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's great to um, to sort of draw out that it is a spectrum. And um, we're going to talk a bit about the chimp model um, in a minute, Steve. That's all right. But I just want to ask about some of the work that you did with, you know, what we would call psychopaths and and how how you manage that and and what the work actually looked like okay well the first thing is that i'm going to take sort of a black and white approach because i think that way we we know there are shades of gray but research shows that the that the what you're calling the psychopathic brain or dissocial personality disorder some people call it sociopath it varies in terms but what we're really saying is if you look at the brain uh, in detail, there's one particular tract of great interest. Uh, the brain doesn't function the same as a typical brain. So this one tract, it's a complex term, unsinate fasciculus. Um, what it does, it connects one part of our thinking brain to the amygdala, which is like our fight, flight, freeze, along with emotional memory and a lot of other things. But what's intriguing about this is in a typical person, we see this has got a very large cross-sectional area. And if you go right down to microscopic level, there are interlocking fibers. We don't know how it does it, but that gives you a conscience. Now, in the psychopathic brain, this tract is very small in cross-sectional area, and there are no interlocking fibers. So it's clearly functioning differently. And it appears that when messages get passed through these neurons, uh, they don't produce this conscience. So one of the hallmarks of someone who's psychopathic is they don't have a conscience. But... Other than that, there are other areas that seem to be not functioning the same as the rest of us. It's not just one tract. Um, and so they lack empathy. They form their own rules in society. Um, they're very cold people, very manipulative normally. Um, they use people. And, and so at a dangerous level, not all of them are axe-wielding maniacs. Uh, that's like the theatrical production of a psychopath. A psychopath is just someone who lacks conscience, uh, lacks empathy, and will use people around them. So most of us have met a psychopathic individual. Estimates on research vary, but in Britain, we think it's probably one in 200 people who have really very little conscience or morals. 
And so when you meet these people, you may not even know you've met them, but usually you feel like you've been used and you often feel that it's your fault, that somehow they managed to make you feel guilty, but they will abuse and use people. So at the extreme part, if they're starting to be dangerous to people, these are dangerous psychopaths, um, which thankfully is a smaller minority, then if they've transgressed a law and they've killed someone or are threatening and dangerous, then they get detained under the Mental Health Act. And these are the guys that I worked with uh, when I worked in, in the forensic field. So they often would have already killed somebody. Uh, and my job then is to keep the public safe. So I assess them to see, uh, have we got a psychopathic individual or is this someone who we can actually treat? So we bring them in and what we do is you do an assessment programme, which can last up to two years or more. And then when we fully assess them to see how they're thinking and behaving and what's really going on, we then go through a therapeutic programme, which it can be anywhere. It's a piece of string from 12 months to the rest of their life. And hopefully, if you can rehabilitate people and they're not psychopathic, just very damaged individuals, and we wake up their conscience and so they are more typical, you can get them back into society. So, so it was a complex field. I hope all that makes sense. Yeah, that's that, we could really go down a rabbit hole on that, Steve. And I just, just on one question off the back of that, like what is the work that you would step in with and, and sort of, is it is it sort of you're trying to implement an understanding of, of rules or an understanding of, of empathy for how they can measure it to sort of come back into the, the normal sort of agreed parameters of, of, the, of the world? Well, the, the main thing to start with is risk, risk to the public or risk to the person themselves. So once you've done your risk factors, that's the reason for detaining somebody. If there's no risk, you wouldn't detain. But clearly when someone lacks a conscience and is dangerous and is threatening, then there's a risk. So once you've done the risk, yes, you're looking at doing therapeutic measures, but you don't normally go down the empathic route because they don't have any empathy. So, you know, it's no good saying what you feel you've done to your victims that it won't bother them so what you do to go down is you know consequential route this is how society works if you break the law which is how most people don't break the law because we, we're concerned with the consequence i hope most people would actually not break the law because of the conscience you know and have moral fiber but but that's basically you haven't got that so you go down the consequence route and say if you do this this is the, the result and generally they'll keep in line then amazing and, and just to sort of move on to the Chimp Paradox, Steve, a book that you, you, you sold more than a million copies since 2012. Could you go through the Chimp model and, and what Chimp management is for us? Because it's so complicated. And when I teach this, even the medical students used to say to me, it's too hard to do. Can we just have like a, a reader's digest, a thumbnail sketch? And so it was actually invented uh, back in the 1990s. So it's, it's well over 20 year old now, it's come to 30 years ago. And all I did is I just said, look, if you look at the brain, you have two thinking brains who are analyzing with agendas, uh, and then you've got this massive computer behind them, and they use that to fulfill their agendas. So when the chimp model, I looked at the part of the brain that we have no control over. So this part of the brain just thinks and acts in a very reactive, defensive way. And we share that with chimpanzees. So at the time I looked at, uh, with hominid specialists, these are the great ape specialists, and said, what are these brains like compared to the great apes? And I was told at the time that the chimpanzee is a bit odd. It's not like the other apes, it's like us. And so I went down that route of recognizing watching chimpanzees that we act exactly the same. It's the same system. So that's why I coined it as the inner chimp. 
and said, when we work with this system, we act in the same way. We're impulsive. We're a bit catastrophic. We can be difficult. We can be violent. We can also be really compassionate in chimp mode. So it's not a bad mode. It's just less predictable. But then I saw there's a different system started to emerge when we're about two or three year old. And this one comes vertically down the brain instead of horizontal. And this, I said, there's the human system because that's where we are deciding what we want. So, and I started seeing this. So you can see it on functional MRI scanners that if I ask you, what would you like to eat? And you're on a diet, then you on the secondary human system might say, I'm going to have salad and whatever. Whereas your chimp might say, not pizza, you know, that's what. And so the two of you are disagreeing. So, and I saw this in people, they had conflict. I saw it in sport where someone says, all I want to do is get into the arena and perform at my best. That's the human. And the chimp then starts panicking, saying, what if I don't win? What if I underperform? Uh, they look stronger than I am. So you have two thinking machines, which can be in, in a great clash. It's a battle. So that's what the chimp model was in essence. And then the backup system, which turns out to be more important than both, is the computer. And that's your beliefs. So, so I brought in the chimp model also because... I teach, obviously, I teach uh, psychiatry at university, but I also teach the therapies. And if you look at therapies, it doesn't matter which one you go to. There are some basic sort of tenets of all therapies. Some are behaviorally based. So you get like the classical conditioning or you get operant conditioning. These are behavioral uh, sort of recognized patterns that, that the brain works with. Some of them are cognitive. These are belief systems and, and, and irrational or rational thinking. Some of them, are more dynamic systems, so they're unconscious things and things we've learned and stored, and then we project relevantly or irrelevantly into our current situation. So what you had is the behavioural therapies, the cognitive, and then the analytical. But you also had biological therapies, you mentioned serotonin. I wanted to bring them all together. So what I did is I looked and said, can we get this all together? And so the chimp represents the more unconscious parts of our brain. The gremlins and autopilots in the computer represents the belief behavior systems, the cognitive aspects. So if you look across all therapies, it doesn't matter which you pick, say transactional analysis, cognitive behavioral stances for itself, or Freud's work, they all selected some of these tenants. And what I felt when I worked clinically was, that's not how we function as humans, we use the lot. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, can I invent a model where people can say, I can relate to that bit, instead of them saying, I'm going to a a cognitive analytical therapist, or I'm going to a, an, a dynamic therapist or CBT. That's what I did. So what resonates with you? So mindfulness took three of the tenants and said, we'll call that mindfulness. And a lot of people resonate with that. What I did in the chimp model is picked all of them and said, let's have a model that does the lot. But I also gave a new idea, which was what people were saying is nobody had said before your brain thinks for you actually thinks and has an agenda and actually can run your life entirely without your help. And so I don't say to people who say, I've got this anxiety state. I don't say, right, you have an anxiety. I don't believe that scientifically. I don't think that's right. I think what you're saying is your system is anxious and you're having to tolerate this and you need to like manage the system. So anything that the thinking is not yours belongs to the chimp. That doesn't mean it's an excuse model. It means you have to manage that. So when you order your pizza with extra toppings on a diet, what I'm saying is you've been hijacked, but you're still responsible. You're still accountable for that. 
Yeah. So it's not an excuse. That's the chimp's input. Yeah, it's ordering the pizza because it wants immediate gratification. After you've eaten it, then the human says, can't believe it, done it again. <laughs> so, And that makes sense of the two systems. And that's what I saw in everything I was doing. So I wanted to say, you're sharing your mind with a thinking machine. And that's sort of, a, it was a new concept in that sense. I think that's why it took off so well. Yeah. It's just the, pa- the patients told me it. Yeah, yeah. And the chimps, you said the system, you mean the chimp systems at the root of anxiety, the root of those intrusive thoughts, maybe, and these different things that can be unwanted in our life? Exactly. Because if I said to you, what would you, how would you like to feel? You're not going to say anxious. Mm-hmm. So this is what people say. Why, why am I getting anxious before an Olympic final or uh, a rugby final? Or, and I'm saying, well, you're not getting anxious. You, you don't do anxiety. Your machine is getting anxious. So what we need to learn is how to dissociate from that, then learn why it's doing it and how to stop it. So it's more of a distant, let's run at this machine in our head because we share our head with it. Mm. And that's, from what I see, that is the neuroscience. That's the facts. Rather than saying to somebody, no, you've had this negative thought. I don't think that's accurate. You didn't do anything. It was projected. I like that. And that's what the science seems to say when we look at this that there is this internal battle with a lot of it out of our control. Mm. So like neuroscientifically, if, if we've got someone in a scanner and it showed the anxiety and it showed these sort of worries and concerns, agitations, yeah. that would be in that sort of old limbic sort of chimp brain. Yes, it would be there. I think what was significant, we're getting a bit heavy, but I'll say it, it this is my world, it's quite sad, I can get excited by it, but we used to say the limbic system was the centre of the brain. And around the year 2000, it became obvious that some researchers looked and said, hang on, there's a thinking part of the prefrontal cortex that's linked to it. And it actually seems to be the same part of the limbic system. So now we accept this part just above our eyes, the orbitofrontal cortex, is actually part of the limbic system. So it no longer is contained. That's what struck me with the chimp. This is, it's connected to the limbic, but it's thinking. So the limbic previously was thought of just an emotional cycle, uh, with the reality is it's a linked machine that thinks and acts and uses emotion and bases itself on emotion. And that's when I said, ah, that's your chimp. Yeah, yeah. So, so the limbic system comes out of the middle of the brain, Yeah, which I find exciting, which is sad. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm sad with you, mate, as well. Um, <laughs> I, so like if I just sort of try and put, put an example, so say if I'm getting ready for a final and I'm on the coach on the way to a final um, yeah. in Melbourne just because it's, it's something that sticks out to me. In 2018, we're going to um, a final on the coach towards playing the best team in the world. And I guess the human version of me was ready to be a leader in the team. It knew the game plan. It knew how to start the game. Mm-hmm. It knew where the game plan was. The chimp of me was making me feel nervous not making me feel anxious, making me consider losing, making me feel like it was going to be a big game, making me physically feel butterflies or, or, or nerves. And, and, and then the computer's there as a player, which goes, right, you're in the change rooms, you get your boots on, you look, you look at each other, you, you talk to each other, you address each other, and you get into the warm-up. And then it sort of takes 
that takes over. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, because what, what you're doing, if, if you look at this, if I said, right, you, you want to go and play this match, how would you want to feel? You're going to say calm, focused, determined. You're going to give me all these things. And then I'm going to say, what would you expect? What would you expect this chimp system to do at this point? Because it it's, thinks it's in a jungle. It's about to die. So you're putting it through terror. So what would you expect? And you'd say to me, well, it's going to defocus me. It's going to think about how strong they are. Because you mentioned that first thing you said, a world top team. So you're telling me that's what your chimps are already looking and saying, this is formidable. Well, actually, that's not going to help you at all. If you think, how are you going to win the game? What's going to help you is focusing just on the process of what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. So therefore, your chimp brain, you can predict what it's going to do. It's going to predictably say, what if we lose? What if I make a mistake? What if the crowd don't get behind us? What if there's unfairness in the referee? What if one of the players lets me down? You can go on forever thinking of all the possibles that it's going to worry about. So now you've got this clash in the brain and your computer system, you're right in saying it goes to a formality, you put your boots on. That's a physical formality. But the computer can also be trained and programmed to go through a mental formality so that you, that contains the chimp. We can't control our chimps. There aren't um, pathways in the brain to stop you worrying. That's why we find it a struggle. There aren't any. But what there are is indirect pathways to stop the brain from worrying. And that is use of the computer. So for example, if I chatted with you on that coach and said, in honesty, do you think that you won't cope if you lose? You're going to say, well, no, I'll cope. It'll be disappointing. Then if we put that in your computer, then if the chimp says, what's going to happen if we lose? You've got an answer, well, I'll cope. It's not ideal, but it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, if you said, um, what will you do when you get on the pitches? I'll do my best. Can you do better than that? Not really. You can only do what you do. So you say, okay, I tell the chimp, I can only do my best. The chimp goes, okay. Can you predict an outcome? Absolutely not. So you can do it again. So what you do is you start putting truths into the computer, which resonate with you. And that starts to answer the chimp's brain. So when it starts saying things like, what if I make a mistake? If your belief is, and it's unique to you, I help you to form them. If your belief is, if I make a mistake, I'm big enough to get over it. I'm an adult, you know. And if your belief is everybody makes mistakes, they're not on purposes, they're mistakes. Mm. All you can do is do your best. It's going to happen. There are going to be mistakes. If you believe that and you program that in your computer, that's what the chimp will hear. And the way the brain works is as the chimp starts to panic, it has to look into the computer. It has to. So it sends the message around the brain. And if you've programmed your computer, it sends it back to the chimp with an answer. And this happens in less than a fifth of a second. So when I work with people who program the computer, my experiences, they say things like, if I work with you, it was weird on the bus. I didn't feel anxious. I had adrenaline, but I didn't feel anxious. I was up for it because your programmed computer has settled the chimp down. But what you can't do on the bus is start saying to the chimp, right, we're not going to panic. It doesn't work like that. The chimp's not going to listen to you. And listen to the computer. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's a bit complicated. <laughs> I love it. I love it, mate. I'm all over it. And this is this is a weird one. This is going to be a complex question. Or it might not be complex for you. Okay. But when we're thinking about men in the world, I'm going to ask you a bit about what men specifically find within their chimps, what, what set of challenges the chimps throws up. But 
when you're getting into normal life, normal day, world of relationships, um, mm. different complex situations um, that you've got, human human relationships that you've got. Yeah. What happens if, or is it, does this happen? Does the chimp take on the cloak of the human sometimes and sort of throw up a fuss within the human reality or is that the human, if that makes sense? Okay. The first thing is, I just want to say, I get a lot of this, what's the difference between men and women's brains and the arguments rage. So I often say it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's you that counts. It's uniqueness. And I'm not the one to tell you what's working for you. That's my role is to help you discover it. And then I work with you. And then I, I go wherever you take me. All I do is try and give you ideas and give you insights into how your brain works. So if you look at a typical male brain, of which there really probably isn't one, um, it's a spectrum and there's an overlap. So I'm not saying this is all men and I'm not saying it isn't women. Um, we know that, for example, the male brain works on testosterone. So if we look at the biological aspects, we know that if men have higher levels of pickup of testosterone, not necessarily just levels, then they're more likely to be confident, but they're also more likely to be risk takers. They're also more likely to be aggressive. So that can border into men getting short fused. Uh, so then you get guys coming in saying, I've got anger problems and anger management. And, and again, I keep saying, well, you, you don't have anger problems. The machine is doing this, but that could be biologically driven. On top of that, you get cultural influences. So it depends how you've been brought up, not just in your nuclear family, that's mum and dad or whoever's at home with you, with brothers and sisters, but also in the wider community in your area in the UK. So there'll be cultural norms of what an expectation of what a man should be like. So I'll take an extreme. Socially, as a culture, for years, we've had this idea men don't cry. I mean, it's ludicrous. Uh, our men don't do anxiety, which is, again, ludicrous. Uh, the answer is, whatever your brain does, it does it. It doesn't not mean you're a man. You're still a man. It just, your brain works in this particular way. So it's ludicrous to impose expectation because what happens then is we start comparing ourselves to this mythical male figure, which is crazy, and then we try and live up to it. And so for years, it's almost amusing if you watch films from the 1950s, 60s, where, you know, it was just ridiculous. There was a pressure on women and men that the archetypal woman, all she could do was scream and faint. Uh, and the archetypal man was meant to be so strong, he could pick her up and run away from this chasing monster uh, and somehow run faster by holding onto her. Uh, because she wasn't capable of running away. So you've got this ridiculous role model for women, ridiculous. And it went on for a good 20 years, but also a pressure on the men that you have to be this strong individual that is a rescue machine that's really up for it. So you can imagine that if you have those expectations as a man, and we still have them, we still have cultural stereotypes where you cannot show weakness, you cannot show tears, you can't even show compassion at times. Uh, it's breaking down, thankfully. Um, then the expectation on men becomes quite unbearable because if you're not living up to this, which we can't, none of us can, then you start to have this guilt or this inferiority and you try and compensate for it and be this macho male, which doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. so, so there are pressures on men in that sense that culturally, hormonally, um, even within societies in cultural areas of Britain that we start getting these stereotypes formed and we try very hard to break them down. So that's why I say stop looking at all of that and look at you as a person, how you want to be, because 
however you are and how you want to be is a man so if you cry and you get anxious that's a man yeah yeah so it's a different way of trying to say but i'd rather go down the route to saying that there are pressures that society might put on let's dispel them watch them dispel them and then start learning who you are and be yourself yeah because mate with mentality just uh, a small sort of synopsis on it is is this community evolve is looking at mental health as something we can train something we can manage and we you know i'm sort of a big believer in sort of knowing your beliefs knowing your values understanding what purpose you have in the world and and i imagined all those to be sort of the human center of it and then i guess on the other side of it we want to be aware of what the chimp can throw up specific to us yes um and add some compassion add some acceptance add some management of that but then also add some training for what is is that computer yes um that can sort of counteract all of that what's the steps to train that computer how, how do you work with elite athletes say, to to actually implement that i think the starting point is what you said so you ask the person in front of you how do you how do you want to behave how do you want to think how do you want to feel you know what is it you want to do if we could we can't neurosurgically remove the rest of the brain so there's no interference so you would tell me how you want to behave with other people in your relationships you would ask me how you want to perceive yourself as a person you would go through all this and so i start i always say start with a blank piece of paper write all this down and say this is what i want to be this is you know the characters i want to demonstrate so it could be sense of humor great friend calm um very rational uh, and the important thing is to recognize and i think it's it's a hard concept to grasp when you've written down all these perfect you the perfect you you've just described yourself that is you so that can lift your self-esteem massive you've just said this is the real me what the world sees is not this because my chimp and computer interfere so the starting point of all of this is to find out who you are and know that is the truth now we're going to try and stop the interference and and turn it on its head and make it a help so the chimp comes on side that's the paradox becomes the best friend and gets the best out of you which it can do so your emotions and these emotionally based thoughts can actually enhance you as a person not destroy you so start with who you are then start recognizing the interference from your chimp and the chimp systems are similar but unique so i can't tell you exactly how your system is running so we know if when we look at research some people are very highly strung chimps some people it's not highly strung it's quite relaxed uh, and there's a spectrum most of us are on the highly strong most of us have neurotic anxious uh, aggressive uh, fearful chimps that is the norm occasionally you get people who don't have that as a consolation i always say the more neurotic your chimp is the more healthy it is right because if you're in a jungle which we're not you'd be the one who survives because if the bushes move it's not the wind it's a leopard you know so you're always on edge and you always think the worst you're paranoid so that's a really good chimp to have as long as you recognize you turn it over your job is to listen to it not interact listen then come up with solutions so calm it down so so then you learn your unique chimp and then you've got to learn how to manage it and it's a bit like for any of the people who are watching this if you've got three children i have to say to parents do you treat them all the same and they say well not really because they're different and the different responses they have different needs 
And that's very similar to the way our brains work. I keep saying to people, you have a unique mind and a unique body, and you've got to work out what works for you. I can't do that. I can help you. But what I'm going to do is say, what is it you want? So we know the human is. What do you feel your chimp does? What's it typical reaction? And they might say it overreacts or it's very impulsive or it shouts out straight away. And then I regret what it said. So we work out what your chimp does. Then we start with a computer. Let's see what strategies we can put in place and beliefs and values that are going to stop this chimp in its tracks. Yeah, well, that's good, mate. That's good, mate. I'm just at this point um, for, for everyone listening on, on the call, and uh, the Evolve members, if you want to start dropping questions into the chat box, that'd be great. And I just want to ask off the back of that, I don't know if it's related at all, but when I speak to men, a lot of the things that they want to change about themselves or move further away from is self-sabotage. Is self-sabotage something that you work with a lot, Stephen? And how do you work with it? Massively. Because again, what happens is we go out there and say, this is how I'm going to be as a person. So I'm not saying this is all men. I'll take an example. So you get a guy who is sort of middle of the road, what I expect, uh, where his testosterone is pumping away. So he's highly driven. Uh, he's likely to be dominant in behavior. He'd be sexually driven. He'll be up for combat because he wants territory. So this is the chimp within him. This is not the man. So the man will say to me, I want to be this calm, collected individual, but the chimp comes in and starts putting its mark on it, which he doesn't welcome and he doesn't want. Uh, and therefore, what he sees is, why am I doing this? You know, I, I, they might, for example, have a girlfriend that they don't treat well. It's not that they don't want to, they know what to do, but they lose it. And then they say, I've done it again. I, you know, I've pushed them away or I've started to almost stalk. You know, it's not unusual for men to track or tech, check a phone. And yet you talk to the man and he's saying, well, you know, every relationship is based on trust. And they know that. So that's the human saying, you can't trust someone, you're going nowhere. So you have to trust. And yes, you might get hurt. Yes, you might get let down. But that's something you've got to do. Lack of trust will destroy it. And then the chimp comes in and says, well, I don't trust. So I'm going to check the phone. I'm going to check... And then the, the guy is again distraught saying, I've sabotaged it again. Why did I do this? Because actually there was nothing going on. So it's very common in my experience to work with men who will self-sabotage and then have very low self-esteem and, and say, you know, I just, there's something wrong with me as a person. That's not unusual. Or I get guys who try and live up to this mythical male image and then feel inadequate. And that's not unusual. They feel like they're just, they're not good looking enough. They're not body, the body isn't physical enough. Uh, they're not clever enough. They have this mythical guy, almost Superman. Uh, and then because of that, it destroys them internally. So they can't live up to what they want to be. So, and they can't even compensate. So that instead of accepting themselves and saying, this is great, they sabotage again by overdoing it and overcompensating. Yeah, that, that's big, mate. That's big. It's almost like they get hijacked by that chimp Perfect. in the moments where they really don't want it. Yes, it's complete hijack. And we need to say, don't feel guilty, don't feel bad. Let's plan. That's why I said, stop, stop engaging with guilt. Uh, it's not going to help you. Let's use the guilt to say, right, how can I understand my mind? And then stop trying to fight the chimp, which is what they do. And then it fails again because the chimp's more powerful than we are. So it will destroy them. You know, you take your chimp on at your peril. 
I often use the example that, you know, a real chimpanzee, the estimate, I don't know how they get this, but the estimate is 20 seconds to death if a chimp attacks you. They are literally five times stronger than a man, so they, they can kill you quite quickly if they mean business. So this is dangerous. And I often say your emotions are similar. They're brilliant. They're fantastic. But if you allow them to attack you, then they could destroy you in no time. And you have no defence. You really can't defend against them. So therefore, let's learn how to manage and nurture your emotions and get them on side so they actually enhance you as a person. That's like getting the chimp on board as your best friend, which you can do. Yeah. And can the chimp hijack you for weeks, for days? Like, is it something that you can fully sort of be taken over by or, or is it just like sort of moments and, and the sporadic thoughts and, and emotions? For most people, we flick between the two systems. So imagine a friend who's agitated about something and you're having a chat to them. Let's say you sat in a pub and you see them as they start expressing this and you're talking and you're acting as they're human. You see their chip go down and suddenly they start talking sense and they feel better. And you can see they've literally shifted systems. So we, you've talked them through a shift. Um, and that's what, what we do. So you're flicking. Some people stay hijacked almost forever they, they're just in chimp mode and they, they don't even know there's a human so the, their chimps have just taken over and i mean people often say to me you know about husbands wives partners they'll say um is, is it possible to not have a human you know is there just a chimp a and a chimp b and i said not really but some people just have never got out of chimp mode they're extreme but i think we all know them we have friends where you just think they're their own worst enemy you know, they just can't rationalise and come down and calm. So, but most of us flick between the two. So you're, you're right, we, we're doing all right, and then something happens. So, for example, road rage is, is so common. So you're driving along and you're in calm position and suddenly cut up and now your chimp takes over. And as soon as it happens, you know it's ridiculous. You know all you've got to do is step on the pedal, uh, pull back, brake, let them go. It's not worth it. But instead, often our chimps start. You know, they take them on and the combat starts and it's it's ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense, mate. Um, literally, hearing you chat through all these, I'm going to ask one more, mate, and then I'll I'll jump to, to the Q&A. Um, have you ever had to speak to an athlete like in the heat of competition? Is there any sort of instances you can think of, like whether it's a combat sport, a racing sport, is there anything where you've had to step in and, and chat to them? yeah. Frequently. But when I work with people, again, I explain, I don't have like a set of techniques. What I do is uh, say I'm working with you. I ask you, like, when you're on the bus, what are the typical thoughts that come through your head that you don't welcome? And what is it we're going to put in place? But what I do, I do this well before you compete. But what we have is we just as you have a warm up, uh, I have a mental warm up. So I get them with their unique warm up and we practice that. So on the day of competition, they will follow this. Now, this is the problem with the mind. It isn't really just following a tick box. It's a skill. So on the day, just like you're running, it's, it's a skill. So some days you get it right, some days you get it wrong. So if they don't quite grasp the skill, then I'm the, the invisible safety net 
and I work with you. So you might be an athlete who says, don't come near me on the day. There's nothing worse than having a psych hovering. My job's to disappear. <laughs> if you're an athlete that says, just hover, Steve, and I'll give you a sign. I have signs with athletes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, because a lot of don't want people to know they work with a psych, which is fine by me. Got the uh, invisible cloak. I have invisible cloak. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I keep my low profile, which is fine. I'm, I'm there as a minion. I'm not important. So, and then the, the athlete who says, don't leave me. What I do then is ask them to put themselves in the right mindset because it's a skill I'm teaching them. I'm not there for them dependent on me. But if they really can't do it while they're learning the skill, then I will travel with athletes and then I will go through their plan and get them into the right place. So I put the chimp back in its box and then hopefully they go out in, in computer mode and compete. Uh, so, yes, I've done that a lot of times. It's not that the athlete's failing, it's they haven't quite grasped the skill. So some days they want me, some days they don't need me. But my job is to be available, but not intrusive. Like it. That, that's that's how I operate. Isn't it? Yeah, like it, Steve. Um, okay. There's, there's one that's that, that terms that's come into the chat that's specific to me. I had um, I've had a as I mentioned just before, cameraman. I had a brain injury, yeah. and um, it knocked well, it knocked my whole life out of skew with. Um, but. I believe I probably dipped into chimp mode quite a few times in and out of it. Um, I had a quick holiday there um, every now and then. But does brain injuries, can they knock out the configuration? Can they make a chimp more active or can they make a chimp less active? Is, do you know anything like that or is it more for... Yeah, no, it can. No, no. Uh, and obviously I, I've, I've worked in this field where we do deal with head injuries and the, the sequelae, the consequences, because often they are psychiatric consequences or psychological consequences. So yes, I've dealt with quite a few head injuries. Um, it's unique to the person again, and you have to sort of work with them to say, what are you experiencing now that you didn't previously, that you're not welcoming? And let's look at how we're going to manage that. So we're working with what we have. So it's no different if you had... Uh, depending on how, how severe the brain injury is, it's like having a very mild or quite a severe disability. You don't write yourself off. So you still work in sport, you still operate, but you might have to moderate the way you approach your event uh, if you've got a disability. So I think what you see is that you're still the same you, but the machine might have some residual damage. Let's mitigate that. Let's get it under wraps and let's contain it. But let's not muddle ourselves up and believe that's me. It's the machine that's not functioning fully, but that means we can learn to manage it and compensate. So, yes, uh, that's the way I approach it is to still do hold on to yourself because you haven't changed. Mm -hmm. You know, you haven't changed. So, and I think self image is a really big thing for particularly athletes who've had to retire on the grounds of head injuries, that their self-image goes and you need to build them back up so you haven't changed at all and there's amazing life you're going to have because amazing person in front of you. So, you know, you're just moving sidewards. That's brilliant. Thanks. All right. Thanks for that, mate. Yeah, thank you. And um, we've got one from Dave Allen, um, who's thanking you very much for the time. He's spoke about um, comparing psychopaths um, you've worked with and some of the top sports stars? This is actually a great question. Okay. <laughs> Have you noticed any similarities in behaviour or how their brain works? And also, which um, has been tougher to work with? I can think of many games where I've probably appeared a little bit um, like a psychopath. Um, but yeah, is there any sort of similarities that you've noticed in behaviour or how the brain works? Okay. And then the double barrel 
can you say which has been tough, the toughest to work with or what type? Maybe if you can. Okay. I mean, people are on a spectrum. This Again, I have to say, I'm only one man, one experience and some knowledge. So I can only give you what I've experienced. And, and I've come in left field as a psychiatrist into sport. My experience in sport has been that, apart from the obvious things like people who win are very driven to win, um, their, their personalities are just the same as the public. Uh, they just have gifts in certain areas, physical gifts or coordination gifts. But the, the personalities, it's just a big spectrum. So, yes, I have met um, people who are bordering psychopathic in sport, you know, be, because they tend not to succeed because they don't comply with the rules. So they tend to fail because they don't train well. I was asked by a sport who, that was a combat sport, could you get psychopaths in because they wouldn't fear hurting an opponent, whereas most people do have that in the back of their mind, so they'll do better. And I said, they won't even turn up for training if it's not advantageous to them. So you won't get commitment from psychopaths. So they'll give up all the time. Now, you're going to get exceptions. Everything has got exceptions to the rules, so there might be some. The vast majority, 99% of people I've worked with in sport, are just everyday people. They've been brilliant to work with. I've enjoyed every minute uh, and they're all unique. I treat everyone unique. I like to see there isn't a blueprint. So which is harder to work with? Probably sport. <laughs> because I'm familiar with the psychopathic brain, so I know what I'm up against, where in sport, I've not only got to learn the athlete and help them, I have to work with the coach. Uh, and often I get resistance because I'm not I'm there to support the athlete and coach. I see them as a single unit, but people are suspicious. Other coach will have different opinions. They might say, no, I scream at them and that works. And obviously it's not compatible with what I'm doing, so it doesn't help. Or I'll get the performance director of a sport who doesn't want me there. So I have the, this, the people around or other players in a team. So it is difficult because people are suspicious uh, and they feel you're going to come in and tell them how they should think and act. And as, as I explained in this podcast, I don't do that. So it's harder working in sport. And then, of course, you've got the press as well, which can be difficult because uh, they have to sell papers and they have to sell stories. But obviously there are human beings on the receiving end. So that can cause a lot of stress to, to athletes. So whereas psychopathic individuals, I'm working just in the courts. So the court is a much more easier place in that sense to work with uh, and the hospital system. Wow, that's really interesting. And I, I guess it, as long as they've got, break it down further, as long as they've got the sort of the normal personality and the sort of conscience and yeah. stuff like that, they could have the, the will to win that makes them maybe look a little bit psycho, psychopathic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but you can... I, I get what you're saying. I think you, you've got to see where somebody is not obsessive, but absolutely focused and driven because they realise how important it is. But to me, I, do, I see it as being, if I go to my world as the doctors, I see young junior doctors who want to know everything and make everything work and not get any mistakes. And I think that's great. And they're absolutely driven because it's their job. And I see athletes doing that. They're driven. It's their job. And they want to get absolutely the best out of themselves. So, and I, I see the parallels in that. And, and as you, before we come on air, you say, I work with the police, I work with ambulance service, uh, fire service, I work with teachers, I work with nurses, done a lot of research recently with nursing staff and with teachers, and I work with children for resilience in schools. And it's the same there. You get individuals who are driven to get the best out of themselves, whatever their walk of life is. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And uh, question from Rory Green, Steve. How important 
or do you stress the importance of our own declarations, what we say over and over again to ourselves? Okay. These are what I would say, these, these are sort of either autopilots or truths of life. So I'm not sure exactly what you mean, Rory, in the sense that I do, you might have affirmations which are like positive thinking, but I don't do positive, I do reality. So for example, if I have what you call the affirmations, I might enter a sporting arena and say to myself, all I could ever do is my best. For me, for me, that would resonate to calm me down and think, right, that's my job. Just do your best. You can't do better. That's blood, sweat and tears. All right. But do your best. Whereas for you, it, it may not. That wouldn't resonate. So you're right. I have what I call the grade A hits, which means that I usually ask people to get five key things that really resonate with them. They know will settle their chimp down and get them in the right mind set so uh, yes i guess that's what you would class as affirmations but i'm always very keen not to do just positive thinking because the chimp's not going to be fooled with that i do reality you know let's go with the reality of life because the chimp can't argue reality so if you have a positive affirmation for example that says i could win this that doesn't resonate for the chimp normally because the chimp will go yeah but you could lose so it's not really, whereas saying I'll do my best, that's a definite. I may not achieve my best, but I'll do my best. And what do you call them, Steve? They're the truths, the truths of they, life. They might, what I call, yeah, truths of life. Like uh, oh, grade A hits. Like that. Grade A hits are truths that are really resonating with me. So it knocks my chimp and puts it back in the box. Amazing. And um, this is a great question. Um, how does the chimp brain act? Or how does the brain act? Um, is there any research on this? when an athlete is in flow state? Okay, when I first entered sport, because it was a new arena to me, I didn't want to come in and, and get it wrong. So I spent quite a lot of time looking at the research. It's not that um, well done, unfortunately. So I'm, I'm being a bit critical as a professor and saying, let's look at what really is solid research and then look at meta-analysis. That means look at all the research, but there's very scant research because it's difficult to do and they probably don't get funding. So when we look at the research that's out there, it's contradictory at times on the flow state. So I've gone down the route of saying, let me look at neuroscience. If you look at what athletes say in the flow state, they say things like, I was confident. I wasn't aware of the crowds. I wasn't aware of what's going on. I just did my job. Uh, it felt like I was just flowing along. Uh, if you look at that and say, where is the brain at that point? If the blood supply and oxygen uptake is in the, what I call the computer systems, you'll enter the flow state. So I did when I first went into sports say, can I, can I get athletes to enter the flow state? So when I talked to athletes, they said, no, it's something that happens almost once in a lifetime. And it, you do these world records. Or, and I just thought that doesn't make sense to me as a doctor and a scientist, because clearly if it happens by chance, there must be a way of doing it. So I started learning to put athletes into the flow state and they started to do really well. So I was really applying the neuroscience and it, it worked uh, for me. It worked. It worked for the athletes I work with. So I stuck with it. So in my model, I'm saying we silence the chimp, we silence the human, and we end up working just within the computer system. Uh, and I show them how to do that. And then we get the best out of them. So that that was my approach to the flow state. But when you look at the research, it, it's scant in what we really mean by that. So I'm, I'm just fishing in the dark and doing what I think works. Is it, is it 
is there any examples of of how you've helped people get into the flow state, the, the computer state, just in case I want to make a comeback? Yeah, in case you make a comeback, get in touch. <laughs> uh, is it, the, the problem I've got with this, and it, it is a problem, is I get this a lot, you know, on telly or radio or whatever I do when it's media, and it's great, but I always say, don't ask me for tips because I can't give you any. Because what I'm saying is you're unique. So what works for you in getting to the flow state probably won't work for someone else. So I need to look at what your chimp is doing and what it's likely to do. I need to know what you believe as a human being. I, I can't tell you what you believe. Uh, and then I work with those and check, test them out with you. We, we have to put them into practice uh, and we perfect it. And then we learn how to silence those machines and then move to the computer. But it is very much, this is a unique thing for a person to do. And my job is to give insights, understanding, and, and help them to get that so they make the decisions that work for them. Yeah. So, so it is hard to say how exactly to do it. The answer is analysing the way they think and behave and getting them to get the insight. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll talk after. We'll talk after, Steve. Um, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate people listening. That's a really unhelpful thing a psychiatrist say. Yeah. You know, it's like in the air, but I'm afraid I'll have to sound like a psych this time and say it, it really is uniqueness. But that's it. Can I just say, because I know we're coming to the end of this, that I'm not a specialist in sport and I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a doctor and uh, I'm a clinician. It's been a privilege to enter sport. Uh, but there are sport specialists and, and they, they don't maybe use the chip model, but they'll have their own techniques, methods. And some people can just give you a process. They will be able to give you tips. And I think, you know, you've got a host of sports psychologists who are specialists in this field. So if there were people listening who have sports teams or athletes that they're working with, or they're an athlete themselves, I'd be strongly recommending you search out a good sports psychologist and work with them. It may not be the method I use. Um, because we all work differently, even sports psychologists do. I've got a team of them, so I'm, I'm just saying they're the experts. So my team work in these sports, and, and they definitely use they use my model because they're in my team. But uh, they, they have very different approaches. I, I think I've I've been lucky enough to pick up on the pattern to get into that at times in games, and probably just ride the the correct wave that gets me to to that state that's just out of touch of the chimp and sort of bypasses the computer and I do something or I did something on the field that I never even knew I could do and, and all that. And it is it does actually feel like magic. I, I sort of see it in my mind as Superman coming through and the chimp like trying to hang on and it's just sort of going going <laughs> gliding through, gliding through the mind. I just find it so fascinating that within our power, we have the responsibility, we can put the effort to almost change our version of reality just by trying to understand what what is in between our ears and and what parts we want to access, what parts we want to give compassion to, what type we need to accept and live an easier and freer and more successful and, and inspiring life. I mean, what you're saying, like, say, self-image and visual, which is great, but but you're right. I mean, I, I've sit indoors, but you're saying it's getting in touch with yourself and thinking, you know, get some perspective, uh, get a great self-image because no reason for people not to and really start living your life, you know, rather than have the chimp impose on us and take us to a place we don't want to go. I'm conscious the time is running out, but I, I don't know if there's any other questions that people want me to answer. I'll try and do them quick. I'm just checking, mate. I'm just checking. I think we've I think we've gone there. I'll just throw one, mate, before, before, uh, before you leave. 
Um, ego has always interested me. The concept of ego, um, when you're growing up, people are like, oh, he's got a big ego, he's arrogant and he's got a big ego, or, you know. And But as you're getting old, you understand the ego plays a role and understanding the world. Um, what's your understanding of, of ego in, uh, as a human being? Okay, th- there's two separate things here because the word ego is used in different ways. So Freud brought in more his ego to the public light where he had a model which he had a super ego, which is only a conscience. Uh, and then he had an ego, which he said was this energy within us. And then an id, which he said was just this primitive animal, which is similar to the chimp. But I've said, no, it, it, what he did was genius, but he forgot that that's connected to thinking. So that the id isn't, it doesn't have thinking. So his ego was all about energy. Whereas I think it's been sort of like changed in its meaning. So most people now when we say ego means their own sort of like praising of themselves, putting themselves forward, self-promotion. I think there's a difference between self-promotion and self-nurturing. So, you know, so for example, if someone is boasting and whatever, then it's not welcome. People would say it's not pleasant. So that ego side, that's not helpful way. If you've got low self-esteem, boasting isn't probably the way to to get a good self-esteem. So whereas I, I think you have to have, if in the colloquial term of ego, a good ego, which means you actually respect yourself. You respect what you stand for. You accept yourself as you are. You don't condemn yourself. Um, so we don't do guilt. It's a useless emotion. We don't do anxiety. It's a useless emotion. Instead, let's get emotions that resonate with us, that get the best out of us. So our ego then becomes balanced where we say, I look after myself. I'm assertive enough, but I'm not imposing on people and I feel comfortable in my own skin. Yeah, That, and I think, is the best ego. Amazing. And in improving self-esteem, you mentioned that just earlier. Is that simply just understanding your self-image, understanding your beliefs, values, and then doing the work to instill that and repeat that and keep casting that vote for your identity and, and the, the sort of self-profession perception that you want through action. Yeah, it's a difficult one. And again, we could have done a whole sort of hour on self-esteem. Um, but in a nutshell, if you want peace of mind at the end of the day, I do it to myself. I look in the mirror and I just say, have you done the right thing today? You know, have you lived by your values? And if you haven't, mop up, apologise, put it right. And that's always been my mantra, do the right thing. You can't stop it if people don't understand you. You can't stop opinions on you. We can't do that. All you can do is make sure that you're at peace with yourself by living out the values, knowing you've done the right thing in life. And if you've done the right thing, hold your head up. And that gives you that self-esteem and that peace of mind. But if, if you can't do that, I would recommend that's what you do. Amazing. All right. What a, what a way to end the podcast. Thank you for that, Steve. Thanks for joining us. What a, uh... And I say thank you to everyone who came on as well, because the, the silent majority behind us, because uh, I can see a few of you. Yeah. Uh, but I appreciate you coming online. I just hope you got something from it. And and just to say for leave, so thanks. I, I just want to emphasise again, anyone, if you put this out there, uh, I'm one man with one experience and it's a model. It's not for everyone's a model. It's not the model. If it resonates, great. But if it doesn't, I'd be saying, don't neglect your psychological health there's so many people out there with different ideas and therapies one of them will resonate so just get to that person because that's what we're all about we're trying to get the best out of people and get a better world particularly for men uh, I've done talks at Calm you know campaign against living miserably which is is for men uh, is open up a bit and, and if you can't you know uh, get in touch with someone who can listen and help you to open up because it changes your entire world and when we get rid of this myth that men can't talk 
Love that. Cheers, Steve. Thank you for that, Will. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a good evening. Cheers, mate. Bye.